Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Lay. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm fabulous. How are you doing? I'm great. It's a little cold here today, but all things considered, we're doing good. Excellent. I yeah. saw the good news about the van build out with the wool insulation. That looks nice and cozy. It is. It actually is pretty impressively cozy in there when the heater's on. I'm really excited to see where you and Eric go with the van as we eat hits the road in the springtime. I know. I'm so excited. So that'll be something for all of us to look forward to. Oh, we'll be bringing lots of fun stories and recipes and fabulous destinations as we take it on the road. Taking it on the road. Today, I thought it would be really awesome if we could talk about the Jewish holiday of Purim. I think that's a great idea. This is really an interesting holiday. It's not something that I'm very familiar with, so doing some research on it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. Me too. I've said before, I'm a little bit of a heathen when it comes to religion. Missed all the the classes growing up, so been able to fill in the gaps as an adult. Learning about Purim has been really interesting, and I'm really excited about what I learned, and I'm really excited to share that with you. I can't wait to hear. Okay, I'm going to give you an animated history of Purim, as understood by me, Kim. Purim is a Jewish holiday celebrating the saving of the Jewish people from genocide at the hands of Haman in the 5th century BC. I'm going to introduce Haman in a second here. Purim's name derives from the Hebrew word for lot, or stone, and this is why it is known in English as the Festival of Lots. And lots are going to factor in in a minute here as well. The story of Purim comes from the book of Esther, also known as the Megillah. Esther was the wife of Persian king Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes I or Artaxerxes I of Persia. Haman was his chief minister and was incensed that Mordecai, who is a Jewish hero and also Esther's adopted uncle, refused to bow to him in, in acquiescence. So anytime they got together, Mordecai refused to sublimate himself to Haman, and that made Haman really angry. In anger, Haman convinced the king that all the Jews living in the Persian Empire, which is modern-day India to Iran, it was a pretty big kingdom, that all the Jews living in the Persian Empire, so huge area, were rebellious and evil and that they all deserved to be killed. And the king, after listening to Haman go on for some time about this, decided, fine, I give you my permission. And so Haman began his preparations to kill all the Jewish people. And to do this, he cast lots, or Purim, to select the date that this massacre was going to basically go down. And that was the 13th day of Adar in the Hebrew calendar. And Mordecai goes into mourning. He puts on sackcloth and covers himself in ashes, and he starts weeping and wailing in public. And other people start doing this as well, showing their displeasure at the thought that they were going to be massacred. So enter Queen Esther. Mordecai asks her to intervene on behalf of the Jewish people, and she is 
Jewish herself. At first, she says that she cannot because approaching the king without permission is effectively a death sentence. But Mordecai reminds her that she's a Jew herself and that by allowing this edict to go forward, she is effectively condemning herself, her family, everyone she's ever known and loved, really. And so she fasts and prays for three days and then goes before the king and invites him and Haman to a banquet. Again, this is a huge deal. She put her life on the line just going to ask for the attendance of the banquet. But right. I've, I've heard that she was a favorite of his. He said yes, that they would go. And Haman is really super pleased by the honor that's being bestowed upon him by Esther. He thinks that he is the bee's knees, that this is just all the glory and accolades that are due to him. And he starts to boast about how important and special he is. But really, the more he boasts about it, the more angry he starts to feel that Mordecai will not bow down to him. At home, complaining to his wife and his sons and his advisors and and everyone starts urging him into We'll just get rid of this Mordecai. So Haman decides to build an enormous gallows in his courtyard, specifically to hang Mordecai and to make an example out of him. So that night after the banquet, the king can't sleep. His mind is troubled by suspicion of that there are plots against him. Being a king is no easy thing. Someone's always coming after you. So he calls for the Royal Book of Chronicles to be read to him to quiet his mind and help him get to sleep. Eventually, he does start to drift off. And as he's drifting, he hears an account of how Mordecai had foiled a plot against the king by two palace guards who were going to kill the king with a cup of poisoned wine. But Mordecai recognized what was happening and he put a stop to the assassination attempt. Mordecai never received any kind of recognition or acknowledgement of his brave act that all this was just hush hush. In short, he didn't do it for the glory. He did it because it was the right thing to do to protect his king. So now King's asleep and he dreams that Haman is standing over him with an upraised sword and he startles himself awake only to find out that there's someone in the corridor outside his rooms and it's actually Haman. So he's starting to think, okay, wait, something's not right with this guy. I think my suspicions are founded. So he calls Haman into his chamber and asks him, thinking of Mordecai, how would you honor somebody who has done a great service for their king, but to this point has not received any recognition? Haman thinks the king is talking about Haman. And so he, he says, oh, well, king, you should dress the man in, in your royal garments and that he should wear your royal crown and that he should be paraded through the town on your horse. And the king recognizes Haman wants these things for himself, like the glee with which he's telling me these things is revealing his intent. And so he actually says, great, then go to Mordecai, your sworn enemy, and give him these honors yourself. I want you to do this task for me. And Haman is really not happy about this. So the parade happens through the town. Haman's really upset. And that night at Esther's second banquet, the king, who is now, I think, a little amused by the fact that Haman's been humbled and by all accounts really does love Esther. He calls on her and basically says, look, not a literal quote, by the way. Look, I know you must have a reason for calling us here. There's no reason why you would want Haman's company two evenings in a row. If you have a petition you'd like to make, I'm ready to hear it. At this point, Esther reveals that she's in fear of her life and not only the fear of her life, but the lives of her people. And the person who wants to cause all this damage and destruction in the king's empire is Haman. I think it's important to understand that the king did not know that Esther was a Jew. 
She had hidden that from him. Yes, absolutely. This is a big surprise to the king. Like, thank you, because that is a very important detail. So Esther has revealed herself to be a Jewish woman and that she's very much in fear of her life and that she's also in fear of the lives of the other Jewish people living in the king's empire. In a fury that Haman would threaten the lives of his beloved queen and a man that was so loyal and who saved his life, he orders Haman to take Mordecai's place on the gallows. And instead of allowing Haman's edict that basically a genocide of the Jewish people, he allows Esther and Mordecai to replace Haman's edict with their own, which is that the Jewish people may defend themselves against those who present a lethal threat. The history record is, according to the Book of Esther, that on that day, 500 attackers and Haman's 10 sons are killed in Shushan, which is the ancient walled city that they're in, and that 75,000 people are killed on Adar 13. And that another 300 people were killed in Shushan on Adar 14, so the day after. The record also shows that no spoils were taken. So the idea was that this was not a moment to get petty revenge or to kill your neighbor because you wanted their cow, that this was truly like meant to be an act of self-defense. At this point, Mordecai assumes Haman's position as the chief minister and institutes an annual commemoration of this day of deliverance, known as Purim, or casting of lots. The main mitzvah or obligations of Purim, there are four, and they are listening to the public reading, usually in synagogue, of the book of Esther in the evening and again in the following morning. That's called Kriyat Megillah. Giving charity to the poor, which is known as Matanat La Evoyim. Sending food gifts to friends, which is known as Mishlach Menosh, I believe. And then eating a festive meal, Sudat Mitzvah. And that is Purim in a nutshell. I love the fact that Esther was brave enough to risk her life for her people. And I think that that says a lot about why this holiday is such a joyous holiday. It's actually been compared to Halloween or Mardi Gras because during Purim, they dress up in costumes. And I found this cool quote by Rabbi Gaudi Levy, who's the director of adult education in Portland. And he told the Oregonian newspaper that the costumes symbolize how God is hidden in all our lives. And he says that throughout the year, we wear these masks and our facial expressions cover who we really are. Our society covers who we really are. On Purim, we're trying to break that. You put on the mask and that inner self is able to explode. Oh, wow. I was wondering about the costumes. Yeah. And I think that that's so true of So many costumes, right? The minute you put a mask on, you're able to just kind of be who you are. Mm -hmm. The act of costuming in one hand is meant to disguise you from demons. On the other hand, it does draw attention to the other nature of who you are. There was something that I've been reading too about Purim, which was that it's about recognizing the spark of God in each other. And by dressing up and costuming on this day, it does identify you to your own community as well. And there's something really sweet about that. This is one day when the Jewish culture celebrates like there's no tomorrow. And I, I think that's true about Mardi Gras in that celebration of Fat Tuesday really is that celebration of going into austerity. And not that there isn't a tomorrow, but there's this austerity about that following day. Just an unabashed appreciation and enjoyment of life. 
Exactly. This is such a festive holiday for the Jewish people. Most of their holidays are a little bit more somber, certainly not as festive as Purim is. And even in synagogue, when they read the book of Esther, anytime that Haman's name is mentioned, they hiss and they boo and they shake these noisemakers. In previous episodes, and most recently the Super Bowl episode, we talked about specific dishes and meals being associated with specific holidays. Even to the the point of these meals and dishes not being made any other time of the year. Hmm. And Purim definitely has its own set of dishes that are highly associated with the holiday and are very symbolic. The most significant is hamantash. And if you don't know what hamantash is, it's a bite-sized pastry that's traditionally filled with poppy seed filling. Though nowadays the fillings, you can have everything from lemon curd to homemade jams and jellies, and they even have some savory fillings. And there are several explanations as to how these pastries got their name and the symbolism that's associated with them. The first explanation has an etymologic basis. In medieval Germany, there was a pastry called Montaschen. Mann means poppy seeds, and Taschen means pockets. Around the 1500s, it's said that the German Jews dubbed these pastries Hamantaschen, literally Haman's pockets. It's a play on words, and the symbolism of this one's pretty obvious because it was rumored that Haman lined his pockets with bribes. The second explanation is more representational of the hat that Haman wore, which was a three-sided hat, think Napoleon, the American colonists, But history has some discrepancies about this one, because this three-sided hat likely wasn't in vogue during Haman's time, so he probably didn't wear it. So what's more likely is that as these hats became more fashionable and they looked like Haman-Toshin, that association lore was born, which is a lot like the laws of similarities that we talked about in the aphrodisiac food episode, like causes like. The third explanation is based on ancestry, and this relates directly back to our conversations that we had for New Year's episode and the curry episode when we talked about eating your luck or ingredients that would impart onto you the qualities that were either absorbed by these ingredients or represented by these ingredients or dishes. In this case, the three corners of the hamantaschen represent Esther's three patriarchal ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for whom she derived her strength. Though, personally, I'm going to say that she gained her strength and her perseverance from the matriarchal side. Sarah, whom God dubbed a mother of nations, and Sarah did not have children until after she was 90. Now that takes some strength. Rebecca, who, according to Genesis 25, 22 through 23, carried two nations in her womb, two peoples, separating within her, but one will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Those nations would later become Israel, led by the younger of the twins, Jacob, and the second is said to be the fiercest enemies of Israel, who was led by Esau, the older of the two, and Rachel, whose son Joseph would lead the Israelites from exile to nationhood. I think the women win on this one. Just going to say. I'm I'm team women here, too. (laughs) The last bit of symbolism that I wanted to talk about is the tradition of the poppy seed filling. And both of these stories relate back to Esther. The first is that Queen Esther subsisted on poppy seeds during the three-day fast when she prayed to God to help repeal the decree that was set by Haman. 
And the second is that in order to hide her faith from her husband, the king of Persia, she ate nuts, seeds, and legumes so that she could remain kosher. So eating foods that contain poppy seeds honors Queen Esther and her devotion to her people. And this is an interesting concept that we haven't talked about yet. The eating of symbolic foods that has this symbolism of denigrating something. So eating hamantashen specifically destroys the power of haman, and you're actually destroying the threat against a culture. So I'm reflecting on things that we've talked about before, where we have yeah. talked about how we consume foods to gain their right. power mm-hmm. or to you know, consume your luck that by eating food that you gain something. We have not talked before about eating the symbol of something that you're destroying what that symbol represents. Right. That's curious. We're going to have to look this up because it's a fascinating concept and not one that so far that we've run across. It's always been Mm -hmm. about the gain that you receive from those symbolic foods. That's a really compelling thought. I'm really excited to look into that further. Yeah. See if I can find other examples. Yeah. Let me tell you a little bit about Mishlosh Manosh. Oh, <laughs> please I'm do. So, I'm so, so hoping I'm not wildly mis- mispronouncing well, this. If we are mispronouncing, please forgive us. Please forgive us. We come with the best of intentions here, folks. So Mishlosh Manosh is a gift meant to ensure that everybody has enough food for the Purim feast that is held later in the day. And also to increase love and friendship between Jews and their neighbors. Every adult over the age of uh, bat or bar mitzvah should send a food gift consisting of two different ready-to-eat foods to at least one person. What I really love about this is that this obligation can only be fulfilled by literally gifting food. The idea that everyone has enough to eat to celebrate. In regards to increasing love and friendship, Mishlash Manosh is meant to counterbalance Haman's accusations that there was strife and dissension among the Jewish people. And I encountered this quote. It's not like a very pithy attributable quote, but it really hammers home what I think is so important about this day and the celebration. It is known that when a person eats good, tasty foods that he received from a friend, the love between them becomes strengthened. And the fact that the Jewish people have been doing this since 5th century BC shows how important we do value food in our communities, that we rely upon it to help our communities grow and to stay together. Mm -hmm. And truthfully, I feel really inspired by this tradition. I'm not of the Jewish faith myself, but I don't think anyone would particularly mind if I joined in. I feel very inspired to make some things that I can share with people that are part of my community. I, I want to encourage community love and community growth and community coherence. We need that in a massive way. I think it's a really beautiful thing and I'm really happy to have learned about it. Yeah. I love this duty of this holiday. Yeah. So if you were to put together a Mishlosh Minot, what would it be? I think that I would give a fresh loaf of bread. Mm. I would gift a small jar of marinated goat cheese, some fresh fruit and olives that would accompany that. So some apples, grapes, some really delicious Costal Vertrano olives that taste like butter, and maybe some pickled or marinated sweet red peppers. What would you do? I think you have to have something that has poppy seeds in it. So a lemon poppy seed cake or Ooh, yum. some kind of a cookie that has, oh, like a thumbprint cookie that has 
jelly in the center of it. Maybe some spritz cookies. I know they're Christmassy, but I think that this would be a good holiday for they're, a spritz cookie. No one ever turns down a spritz right? cookie, truthfully. Like, it's August and someone offers you a spritz cookie, you're eating a spritz you cookie. Are. Yeah, so that's what would be in my food gift basket. So before we uh, venture off into the kitchen to build our baskets, what can our listeners expect for next week? Oh, I'm so glad you asked because next week we are going old school and we are going to explore the world of casseroles. Oh, this is a world that I am very familiar with. Me too. I even have a favorite all picked out. Oh, that's good. I have a not favorite that I'm sure I will discuss. <laughs> Excellent. I have a feeling there's a fun food fact in here somewhere too, so stay tuned. Oh, I can't wait. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing, we'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it. You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs>